0: There we go. This, this, this show
1: is brought to you by Safety FM
0: Sorry about that everybody Just one Not hit button on this uh, board right. One button not pressed on board Okay, let's start over again Wednesday, thank you, welcome to Wednesday, March first, 2023, from the border of liberty and prosperity in the highway to the north. How you doing out there? It's a new month. We're 70 days away. Yes, from the end of this COVID-19 emergency. All right, on May 11th. when you're listening to this, it'll be seven days, depending on how you're to count and you know where you are. How's everybody doing out there? We're going to to go right to our commentary, right up front, and then we're going to handle the news, in case you're not familiar, this is Safety Wars. Worse, uh, I'm Jim Colson. We've been uh, coming up on season three next week for this whole thing. Uh, we're going to have, uh, hopefully this weekend, I could uh, get around to editing some videos from last Friday's International Conference on Climate Change, so uh, I think it's important for us to advance questions that haven't been answered in this whole climate de- uh, change debate, like. Are the policies that are proposed going to actually impact climate change? Are do we have enough resources out there for the whole electric grid? Do we have enough capacity in the electric? Grid? Yesterday we were—I uh, read a story about the highest demand trade. Right, and the trades are hurt. The manual labor trades, the skilled trades, the unskilled trades, everything out there. Uh, The electricians are going to be in high demand. And that's the forecast, one forecast I'm looking at. So I guess electrical safety is going to be a big issue too. Because you see a lot of people out there doing stuff that they probably should not be doing. Uh, Today I was driving around and someone had a... Aerial and boom, uh, boom lift, articulating boom lift. They parked it overnight on the street and they put the uh, basket with it right next to the power lines. Not a very good thing. It's a bad thing. BAV. So, we're going to entitle this Getting Out in Front of the Problem. You're going to say, well, what does that mean, getting at in front of the problem? Let's say you have a problem. Right? You want to be ahead of things. I think we're all familiar with the uh, phrase, if you're not, you won't be right now. Uh, the truth, uh, the, a lie gets around the world three times while the truth is still getting out of bed. How do you like that? What does that mean? We're all about building capacity. And uh, I, I think I mentioned this before. We, I had a problem at the beginning of my career doing accident investigations. And I, you know, until you get the knack of it until, uh, no accident, incident investigations. Because I always focus on preventing things and managing things up front. And what I learned eventually it took years to find this out. When you have an accident, when you have a problem, it could be any kind of problem. You want it to be ahead of the problem. Same thing with OSHA, right? With things when you have an accident you want to have enough capacity built in your system so you're ready for the unthinkable. So for example there and I mentioned this book one time one time before there's a uh, it's almost a classic book now uh, about 15, it's been out for about 15 16 years The Unthinkable by an author Amanda Ridley one of my favorite books. Who lives and who dies in disasters? And she goes into a whole bunch, and this is before the station nightclub fire, I believe, where uh, up in Rhode Island, where a lot of people died at a White Snake con- uh, uh, concert. What do you do to make an emergency more survivable? And you have to have this in your mind. You're creating capacity in yourself. You don't want to think about it, but you kind of okay. Well, how am I going to get out of this building if it's on fire? How am I going to get off this plane if it crashes? We have an emergency. Uh, I play the hotel game with one uh, when, when my kids are younger, and we still do. We're in a hotel. Okay, where's the exits? Let's take a tour of the hotel. Let's see what's going on. Where's our meeting location? You may do this in your house, and I recommend it. If we have an emergency, where do we go? Right, we have to evacuate the house. The same thing goes in the workplace. You have an emergency action plan that should be part of your overall health and safety plan. If you have a mobile crew, or if you're visiting a facility, you have a site-specific training, site-specific health and safety plan. In the event of emergency, we go to location one. If that we can't make it there, we go to location two. You don't go across the street to Starbucks or down the street to the Starbucks, and then we don't know where the hell you are. All right? That's a really important uh, uh, thing. Now, accident investigations. Uh, you want to be out in front of the accident investigation. You do not want somebody else to be managing your accident investigation so i had one client many years ago one client not so many years ago uh they i said look i could give you a uh health and safety professional on site to go and uh to go and do accident investigations accident management but more importantly prevent accidents right that's what We're going to, well, our focus is going to be in the event of an accident. We're able to manage it. And I have a whole program out there. again, programs are made to fail, right? Eventually a program is going to fail, but it's not, if not, when, if you listen to Todd Conklin's podcast today and, oh, no, no, no. We're going to let the insurance company handle it. And you don't want to do that. Well, let the insurance company handle it. So you want to be in control of this. So what do you think they ended up doing? They let the insurance company handle it. And of course the insurance company is going to write it in favor of what the insurance company is for. That's what the focus is going to be. And at the end of the year, when they went for their workers comp renewal, they were looking at like a $3 million bill and they ended up having to fold the company Uh, because they ended up because they let the insurance company come out and insurance investigators come out for every accident. Right, And, of course, the workers' comp, they wanted them that kind of money up front, and the company decided to fold at that point. Not so long ago, we had another client who had an accident on site and just uh, did not uh, uh, know that they were supposed to do an accident investigation. They said, okay, well, we'll let other people handle the accident investigation. And what do you think happened? How do you think that turned out? OSHA got involved they came to the job site it was catastrophic loss a couple of days later now OSHA was writing the accident report and they put it out they said well where's your accident report well you didn't have one okay let's do our own investigation they ended up it it did not end well leave it at that it did not end well so what do you do and it's all all in the record keeping uh, section of OSHA we and there's a handout there. If you go in on the OSHA website and you uh uh and you, and you look under in injury and illness record keeping forms, they have the OSHA 300, OSHA 300A, right, and the uh o, uh OSHA form 301 injury and illness incident report. So, and and I'll just read. Right from it. This injury and illness incident report is one of the first forms you must fill out when recordable when a recordable injury, work-related injury or illness, has occurred. Together with the log of work-related injuries and illnesses and the accompanying summary, these forms help the employer... Uh, to develop a picture of the extent and severity of work-related incidents, within seven calendar days after you receive information that a recordable work-related injury or illness has occurred, you must fill out this form or an equivalent. So often, a lot of companies have their own accident investigation forms, right? But this is the minimum, and there's uh, some arguments for using just the OSHA 301 form versus your own accident investigation form. I have a tendency of using both when I'm running the show. Because you fill out the OSHA form, they're not they can never ever argue that you did not do the investigation. If you fill out their form. And then I have other notes and other reports and everything, especially if it's a catastrophic injury or a big injury or something that I know is gonna probably end up in court or something like that. Uh, I have a you know, a big investigation that we do and it's a you know it's a real investigation. So you know, we we talk and I talk often about the one pagers. What's a one pager? It's a one page accident investigation form. And the investigation, and that's what a lot of companies they expect from their health and safety person. We're going to do a one pager. You got that accident investigation form done within uh, 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 by the close of business, or sooner. And here OSHA says, "Look, you have up to seven calendar days to do this, right here, right in the investigation, right." And you have to keep the form on file for five years following the year to which it pertains. Right, so you have one week to do this. I don't suggest you wait till six and a half days to pick this thing up, bad boy up, and start filling it out. So you do it as soon as possible. But realize that, if, if, especially if you're dealing with a complex uh, uh, incident, it may take more than a week to do the accident investigation. And the, uh, this is the other thing. The OSHA 300 log is a running, what I call a running form or a rolling l- record form, meaning you have to, uh, you have to if you have a, an accident in January and an accident in March, that's recordable, and then we'll get into what that is in a minute, and then going onward, you know, they have one in October, and then, you know, you're planning on filling out this form in January before it's due, and you have to put it on file, we all know that stuff, right? If you do that, and if you don't do that, and you think you're going to have a file folder with a bunch of post-it notes in it, OSHA comes to a site for an in- thing. What's the first thing that they ask for? They're going to ask for the OSHA form three hundred, and at least the last three years of the OSHA three hundred forms. And you better have them in file, and you better be able to produce them. That again, that's getting ahead of the curve. If you have that, right? If you have that, fill. You know, we get the form. You. Have it on file, right? I, I encourage people to put it, know that it's supposed to be posted and you have a clear uh, uh, file envelope. You put it in and you have it hanging. And this way, if OSHA shows up, guess what? It's right there on the wall? from the And uh, keep the last three years right on the wall, right? This way, It's there. You don't have to go looking for it or anything. It's immediately there. Or one of my clients has all this paperwork in a binder right at the front desk. OSHA comes in. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Here's the form. You produce it on the spot. But this is a rolling form. So if something happens in January, you better make sure you put it in for January for that. You're going to keep this log going in because it's a log of working related. The log would indicate it's are running like you know, Star Trek Captain's Log, you keep going on and on. Now, uh, so, uh, let me back up here. What is an OSHA recordable on here? So, first thing you have to do is, uh, when an injury what is an entry, and I'm reading right off the form. Well, this is like the uh, Luther's small catechism. They ask you questions and they give you answers. All right? When, an, when is an injury or illness considered a work-related? An injury or illness is considered work-related if an event or exposure in the work environment caused or contributed to the condition or significantly aggravated a pre-existing condition. Work-relatedness is... Resume for injuries and illnesses resulting from events or exposures occurring in the workplace unless an exception specifically applies. So this is uh, all contained in 29 CFR Part 1904.5. Uh, Which work-related injuries and illnesses should you record? The obvious one, death, loss of consciousness, days away from work, restrictive work activity or job transfer, or medical treatment beyond first aid. And this is a very high end. We're doing a thousand mile in orbit. Look down on this thing. This no, there are different criteria, different. If you're not sure, give us a call. 845-269-5772. So uh, what we're, and I'll announce this now. What we're doing now is uh, if you have a health and safety question, give us a call and uh, we will consult with you over the phone. Not for free. Uh, so you have a question. Uh, and there we get to know you, everything else. We're in there. I uh, did this uh, for the first time this week where I had someone call in with some questions. I said, you know what? Uh, give me your uh, Venmo. Here's my Venmo account. Pay me. And you got me for X number of hours. Right. And we took care of it. Right. What are the additional criteria? Right. You have to include needle stick injuries, medical removals, a TB inve- uh, infection, or a hearing uh, test issue. Right, What is medical treatment? That means a visit to a doctor or healthcare professional solely for observation. Right, Medical treatments include managing and caring for a patient with the purpose of combating disease or disorder. The following are not considered medical treatments and are not recordable medical observation, diagnostic, or first aid. What's first aid? Using non-prescription drugs and non-prescription strength. So if someone tells you to take 8-ibuprofen, that's not a non-prescription strength, right? Administering tetanus immunizations, cleaning, flushing, or soaking wounds on the skin surface, using a wound covering or sterile strip or butterfly bandage. Using hot or cold therapy, using a totally non-rigid means of support, using a temporary immobilization device while transporting a accident victim, uh, drilling a fingernail or toenail to relieve pressure or draining fluids from blisters, eye patches, a simple irrigation or cotton swab, right foreign bodies. Uh, to remove foreign bodies not embedded in or adhered to the eye, using irrigation twizzers, cotton swab, or other civil means to remove splinters or foreign material from the eyes other than, uh, other than from from the areas other than the eyes, using finger guards, using massages. I like that one. And drinking fluids to relieve heat stress. All right. So now those are first dates. But now this gets a little bit more. And then how do you... Uh, 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 the side of the uh, case involved is restricted work, right? You would have that. And now, under what circumstances should you not enter the per- employee's name on the OSHA form? Again, we have HIPAA laws. However, they don't necessarily apply to uh, they don't necessarily apply to workplace stuff, except for the uh, this unless otherwise specified, right? You must consider the following types of injuries or illnesses to be privacy concerns. An injury or illness to an intimate body part or to the reproductive system. This actually happened uh, at a company I was working with, and I'll mention the guy's name, Chuck Webster. We were worried about this one for an hour, and what he ha- what happened was he had a human resources handler where a woman uh, was uh, got burned, in a private area sitting on the toilet because the cleaner did not uh, remove a cleaning solution from uh, the toilet seat when they were cleaning. So uh, what do we do here? She got burned in an intimate area. We had uh, the uh, uh, human resources handle it at that point. And another female handled the situation and on the ocean 300 log that didn't go on the ocean 300 log. An injury or illness resulting from a sexual assault. So here's one for you. our workplace violence incidents, OSHA recordables? You bet you better believe they are. Right? A mental illness, a case of HIV, hepatitis, or tuberculosis, a needle stick injury or a cut from a sharp object that is contaminated with blood or other potentially infectious material, or other uh, illnesses if the employee independently and voluntarily requests that his or her name not be entered in the log. Now I would get that one in writing, right? Because don't be like another company that's named uh, after a large river in South America that got cited for this several times. You want to make sure non-record keeping issues. And then let's remember something, right? Can these logs be revised? Yeah, they get revised all the time. Are things uh, a first aid case and don't end up on the log? And then two months later, it turns out that they need a medical treatment? Yeah, that happens. Absolutely. How about if it goes the other way, where you believe that this is a uh, work-related illness, you put it on the log, and then two months later, it turns out that this was a pre-existing medical condition that had nothing to do with work. It wasn't aggravated by situations at work or anything like that. Yeah, you could update the log. You put a line through it, initial it, and maybe a letter of explanation in there. This is a personal medical issue, right? You could revise these logs. Actually, uh, if there's a revision in the log, you better have you better have some documentation. But the other thing is uh, OSHA, right? They, no, and they're going to look on that. Well, well hey, you're on the ball with this sort of thing. But uh, this is where a lot of companies foul up is specifically on this. Uh, and another thing is this. Uh, things could happen years later, right? Uh, that might end up having to be on the log. So, And then you're required to, you know, file this, uh, uh, you know, electronically. Certain employers are. Now, calculating injury and illness incident rates. All right? Now, uh, generally speaking, if you're under 10 employees, you do not have to fill this out, but check the regulation and everything else and how it applies to you. It's like the IRS, right? You have to figure out the IRS is never going to tell you what, Taxes you have to pay, but if there's a problem, you bet your rear end they're going to you know what they have to do an evaluation. So uh, page two of this right is calculating the incident injury and illness incident rate. Normally, this is uh, required on on a lot of projects, capital projects, uh, state projects, federal projects, uh, and you need to go and get with your human resources on here or your payroll where you have to figure out how many hours are worked by all the employees, right? And with that, that really the payroll people are really the only people that you could, uh, measure this with, uh, where, no. So if you're an hourly wage earner, easy to calculate relative, maybe laborious, but it's relatively easy to calculate. However, let's say that you are salaried. That's where you run into issues. Salaried workers, and no, you're required to keep an accurate timesheet for time, but some salary workers may, you know, work more than this. 50 to 100, uh, you know, uh, 50 to 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week, right? So what 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 goes on the uh, log, right? Whatever number you're giving it, employee name, job title, date of injury, where the event occurred, describe the parts of the body uh, 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 parts of the body affected and uh, the object or substance that directly injured or made the person ill. Then the next thing is step three classify the case. is it a death days away from work job restriction other recordable and step four and five days away from work and then uh, what you're what it's gonna uh, step five is an injury, skin disorder, and what type of illness, and everything else. Now, then you have summary, your summary sheet, where you're going to have uh, the OSHA's Form 300A. That is mandatory, and you have to fill out and know who, who it is, who, what's your NAICS number, uh, employment info, uh, information, all different types of stuff in here that you can use with that. Uh, now, the Injury and Illness Incident Report. So let's get back to that. Now we took a diversion on 300 and 300A. Now a form 301. So you, so I always fill this out like this because what's OSHA gonna say? They can't complete. You're filling out their form, right? I May mean, add extra forms and everything else, and I fill out also the. Uh, my own incident report, which is probably a lot longer than, a long, lot longer than this, and it's much more detailed because I'm always thinking litigation, and there are other things that are required in there that are not on this form. So if you think now to satisfy OSHA requirements, I would use this form, but I would also have all the other forms out there. So what's the information? What's the name, address, date of birth, date hired, gender? Uh, they may have to update that with the way things are nowadays name a physician or other healthcare professional if treatment was given away from the worksite where was it given was the employee treated in an emergency room hospitalized overnight as an inpatient so let's say you, you're there are certain things you have to report. If your employee is hospitalized over at night as an inpatient, you have 24 hours from the time of the injury to report it to OSHA at 1-800-321-OSHA uh, and if, and expect a visit from OSHA. They don't always investigate, but they but expect a visit. And by the way, when you dial 1-800-321-OSHA, they're going to be asking you these questions. So... These are, I don't know if they have uh, a checklist and this is the part of the checklist or not. I don't know that, but they're going to ask you all of these questions or at least most of them. And if you don't do that, uh, that's a citation. They're going to cite you for that one, right? Uh, that's why it's important to record uh, if you can, I mean, if you had the wherewithal to do it, when an employee gets hurt, my first question are well, no, what what it is? Are they okay? Blah blah blah. What time did this happen? And I write that down so I don't forget it. The case number from the log, the date of injury or illness, the time the employee began the work, and the time of the event, and uh, was the employee doing what was the employee doing just before the incident occurred? what happened what was the injury or illness what object or substance directly harmed the employee and if the employee died when did his when did the death occur and by the way osha will help you filling this out so that's what oh, you got to you got to be ahead of it so getting back to the theme you have to be ahead of everything if you're a safety professional you don't have this stuff. You don't have your groove note together. You're going to have a problem because this should be one of those things. Part of the, how do I do an accident investigation? Uh, uh, certain employers, and I got into this with well-known companies. All right. We want the report done by the end of the day. And when I hear that today, I break this out. Number one, OSHA does require it for seven days. If you want a preliminary report, I'll give you a preliminary report. That's not a problem at all. But if you want a, you know, if you want a report that's going to be uh, irrelevant, we can't get to the bottom of what exactly happened. We can't develop like Red Sutton says, a learning team. We can't do that. You know, you can't do that by the end of the day. We could give you a preliminary report and just put a disclaimer on there. Hey, things may change. We're still doing the investigation. That, yeah, we could do. But don't expect a final report in there. And if a manager is asking you to put out, you know, a final report by the end of the day, you're going to have a problem. And, I know, uh, it's already happened to me where people, I found out years later, years what the actually happened and i was being lied to uh lied to all over the place on uh what the reports uh uh, on what actually happened after things have been litigated and everything else oh you want to hear what really happened this is what really happened what have, might have had something to do with the outcome of the case i don't know so anyway it's very, uh, uh, you know, be out ahead. Now, what happens if you don't do the accident investigation right away? I don't mean not within a week. You're going to rely on someone else. Someone else gets to control that narrative on what happened. That's a problem. So, for example. Employ uh, OSHA has the multi-employer, uh, the multi-employer uh, uh, policy. All right, I wasn't planning on talking about this. Hold on, let me. Uh, as usual, I get off on tangent, and I go in here. And I do this. So we have the OSHA multi-employer policy here. All right. And let me get out the directive. Hold on. Here. You have different roles. I know this by heart. However, uh, I don't want to make a mistake because I uh, I don't want to make a mistake. Okay. So, let's say you're let's say you're on a construction job or you're coming in to do some type of maintenance, you're a contractor doing maintenance. So, Uh, This is right off of uh, direct number CPL2-0.124 all the way back from 1999. So here we have For multi-employer, and I'm just going to have select texts in here. On a uh, multi-employer worksite in all industry sectors, more than one employer may be citable for a hazardous condition that violates the OSHA standard. A two-step process must be followed in determining whether more than one employer is to be cited. Step number one. The step, first step is to determine whether the employer is creating, exposing, correcting, or controlling them, or a controlling employer, right? Step two is if the employer falls into one of these categories, it has obligations with respect to OSHA requirements. Step two is to determine if the employer's actions were sufficient to meet those obligations. So you have a couple of things here. You have what is called the creating employer. That is the employer that caused a hazardous condition that violates an OSHA standard. Right? That's the creating employer. Employers must not create violative conditions. Employer that does so is citable even if the only employee exposed are those of other employers at the site. Okay. And you also have what is called the exposing employer. An employer, that's an employer whose own employees are exposed to the hazard, right? So they're your employees, you're exposing, right? Then you have the correcting employer, an employer who is engaged in a common undertaking on the same work site as the exposing employer and is responsible for correcting the hazard, right? This usually occurs where an employer is given the responsibility of installing and or maintaining particular safety or health equipment or devices and you have the controlling uh, employer. That's an employer, and this is where normally a general contractor is, right? An employer who has a general supervisory authority or con- I should say construction or environmental management firm or real estate management firm. An employer who has general supervisory authority over the worksite including power to correct safety and health violations itself or require others to correct them. Control can be established Again, get everything in writing. Control can be uh, uh, established by contract. Very important. Or in the absence of explicit contractual provisions by the exercise of control in practice. Right? Descriptions and examples of different kinds of controlling. Co- right? uh, employers are on the site and it gives examples. So getting back to the accident investigation. It's important that if you're the employer, right, you're going to be the exposing uh, employer, right, uh, for what we just said, you get out and you do the investigation. If you cannot do that, hire somebody like me, 845-269-5772, or Jim at safetywords.com. You get with us with this, and we go and we do the accident investigation, because the worst thing that you want to do is to have another one of these roles, right? The, uh, the creating employer, the correcting employer, or someone, or, the, ex, uh, or uh, 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 no, the exposing, the correct, all these other things, the creating, right? And all these other contractors getting involved, all these other people, because guess how that accident report is going to end up? Any idea how how do you think that's going to end up? That's going to end up. It's not our fault. It's not our fault. This is what happens, and what are they going to do? They're going to sh- they're going to you know shove it where the sun doesn't shine shine right on you. And guess what? It's always going to be your fault. This way, if you reported to OSHA when you're supposed to report it to OSHA, if it's required. If you're showing you're doing taking uh, initiative, you're out there trying to correct the problem. All of a sudden, and you have so, you know, and this is where the where the uh, advantage of having a preliminary report by close of business is. You're ahead of the game here. You got you're ahead of the game on this. You get to control that. And in the really really bad uh, situations. Or maybe you have to uh, to go, no, it's a newsworthy thing. You got to go in front of the press, something like that. You want to be able to be in control of the narrative. This is what happened. Because the worst thing you want to do is to give that to somebody else and then they're in control. They're in control and may not work out for you. You don't want another contractor to do the accident investigations for you. You do not want another contractor. Uh, or, or the government to do the investigation, because I tell you what, who are they going to ask? you are going to ask everybody else, and they're going to come up with the darndest things sometimes. Not intentionally, not because they're evil, not because there's a uh, uh, conspiracy against you. Nothing for like that, but because, hey, witnesses are, uh, are going to pan things in certain ways. That all being said... Let's say that the employee gives you all of this information, right? You have witness statements, you have a narrative, everybody signs off on the form, and maybe some companies are now uh, recording everything, right? Everything's on record, right? Everything's on record, everything's on video. And then all of a sudden they tell OSHA something else guess what under the under the general duty clause they have to cooperate with any investigation promulgated under the occupational safety and health act right now you have the other situation they tell you one thing tell another employer another thing and the other person isn't the right have them sign the and we go into what that is and I, you have somebody else go out there and they tell them this person another thing, they tell OSHA another thing, let's say that this goes uh, for litigation. Let's say this all goes for litigation. Well, you tell this guy one thing, this guy another thing, and this guy another thing. Which Which one is it? That happens all the time on this. Happens repeatedly. They go to court and they tell them something else again you have to be out in front right i'll bang on the table today you have to be out in front on all of this stuff and take initiative on this have your groove node together on this believe believe me it helps on this and what ends up happening is you know the first couple of times it's gonna be rough i'm gonna tell you know anyone who says this is easy has never done this before. this is not easy. this is from again, decades of practice doing accident investigations with this stuff. So that's what you end up uh, that's what you end up uh, having to do you know get out there get out there in front with this. So anyway, that's all I have to say with this is be out in front. If you need a hand, give us a call. I'm going to take a break. I went for 40 minutes without a break here. Wow. So uh,
1: let's hit, hit the right button here. Wayne Hoffman with the Safety Pro. Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd. Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant. Jim Pozell with Safety Wars.
0: you want answers? So do I. This is Jim Polzin with Safety Wars. Now, let me uh, add one more thing to this discussion here. All right. All about this getting out there with the narrative and everything else. with uh, With everything, right? But let's not forget something. Don't talk to the press. Don't talk to the press. Have someone else talk to the press. Have a, 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 a press person talk to the press. That's a special uh, uh, expertise, number one. Number two. When you're talking to an investigator, an OSHA investigator, or anyone from the government, you have Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent, right? Right? on all of this stuff. You have a fifth amendment, uh, right against self incrimination. And once you get uh law enforcement investigating things, I would suggest you talk to your attorney. Uh talk to your attorney and have your attorney handle things. Right. Uh I think uh Bruce Will uh why did I say Bruce Will not Bruce Willis is Alec Baldwin is uh probably gonna regret uh being so open with everybody and not keeping his mouth shut to be quite honest with you so you have all right uh, so work right you have a right to remain silent you do not have to, uh, you do not have to uh, necessarily cooperate and answer questions if you do any question you don't want to on this and that now uh, due to my understanding I'm not an attorney uh, my understanding is that based on recent Supreme Court rulings the the uh, the uh, uh, you have to assert that right. I mean, you have to say I'm taking the Fifth Amendment, fleeting the Fifth, or what, however you want to talk about. So uh, uh, that's basically what I'm going to tell you to uh, do is you know, with that. Uh, now, now on the other hand, you cannot prevent an employee from talking to OSHA on that, right? You can't. Um, you can't do that. So work through your. Uh, you know, have a plan in place. That's what the whole idea is. Be prepared ahead of time. Add capacity in your system with everything. Uh, with that, we uh, give a course on this, uh, on statement analysis. We actually give a course on this as part of our uh, accident investigation uh, stuff that we go over with management. I'm actually going to be presenting it next week with a client with this on how to handle the OSHA stuff. With that, uh, you know, an investigation. Do do Okay, so you're probably gonna want to download this and play it for your uh, coworkers or any interested parties on this. All right, uh, OSHA did not have any uh, updated. Uh, 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 updated uh, uh, press releases today for March, right, uh, on there, at least that time of the broad, this broadcast. So uh, some stuff from the Department of Labor. US, uh, you, from This is from Washington. The U.S. Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, issued the following statement on President Biden's announcement on his intent to nominate Julie Sue as the next Secretary of Labor. I am grateful to President Biden for announcing his intent, intent to nominate my dear friend and colleague, Deputy Secretary Julie Sue, to succeed me as U.S. Secretary of Labor. Julie has been a true partner in uh, leading the Department uh, of Labor, and her drive and vision uh, have been central to everything. This is from late U.S. Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, have been central to everything we have achieved in the past two years. Uh, as Deputy Secretary Julie's achievements, prioritizing rights, protections of the most vulnerable workers, driving our equity work to attract a diverse world-class talent into public service, modernizing workforce development and unemployment insurance systems, and deepening our engagement with state and local governments have been broad and deep. She's a lifelong champion of America's workers, and I have the utmost confidence in her ability to sustain the work of the department and advance the president's vision of an economy that puts workers first and leaves no one behind. U.S. Department of Labor announces $48 million in funding available to support pre-release job training services for incarcerated people. I'm going to tell you this. And I've done training for for, uh, formerly uh, incarcerated people. You want to talk about people who get taken advantage of in every way possible as people who are trying to straighten out their life and they get out of prison? Uh, They have an astronomical... uh, I believe it was NBC two years ago came out with a report on this uh, that uh, uh, the uh, uh, things that they had to go through So most likely they're going to be in a non-union construction job, residential, right? Uh, Because they're not eligible to get a lot of, let's say, uh, in the oil industry. Uh, If they've recently been released, they may not be able to go and be eligible for security clearances or for background checks. So they get really, uh, no, they're working for companies that really, uh, you know, uh, they're not nice jobs. They're construction jobs, right? Maybe fast food workers. Guess what? Maybe dollar general, right? With this stuff and, or other, I shouldn't have said it, but and no, any other things where they have huge OSHA issues or there is no safety program and they get put at risk. That's why a lot of uh, folks in that situation end up to be entrepreneurs because no one wants to hire them. So that's good to be, uh, you know, training these folks. Uh, that's an absolute need. I mean, they pay their uh, dues to society. Just give them, just let them, you uh, know, let them work. Give them some dignity to work here, right? Find something meaningful, hopefully. Uh, U.S. Department of Labor finds Mississippi Medical Center illegally deducted hours worked, failed to pay required overtime, and recovers two hundred one k in back wages. And uh, this is from uh, a healthcare facility in. Uh, Ruleville, uh Missouri, uh, where uh, they automatically deducted a thirty-minute lunch break from some employees' hours without making sure that they were free of work-related tasks and unable and able to take breaks. So this sounds like people working through breaks is what this says. Some of the facilities' nurses need to work through lunch breaks, and they were not getting paid for them. Uh, one hundred and ten workers, two hundred one thousand four hundred and thirty six bucks. So let's see how much is that. I can't do that in my head because I cannot broadcast and do math in my head at the one same time. So 201, 436 divided by 110 equals, so $1,831 and change for each employee. Wow. That adds up. U.S. Department of Labor to host one uh, one-day online educational seminar for agricultural industry employers. So uh, it's on March seventh, and you got to register to attend. Check your DOL uh, 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 listings here. Uh, and the website is right on the website. So I decided. No, we're going to uh, uh, we're doing the uh, no with the rail disaster here, right? Uh, I decided to go um, onto the NTSB website and because they have news releases, too, on things. So it's probably worth it going in there. Uh, So here we have NTSB opens a public docket for a train derailment in Virginia. And this is from yesterday. The NTSB opened up the public docket Tuesday for... It's ongoing investigation into the 2021 derailment of a Washington Metropolitan Area Transfer Authority train in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, the docket for this investigation includes more than 1,400 pages of factual information, including reports and operations and going on and on. Uh, it does not report uh, provide the final report or a probable cause. The NTSB will issue a final report at a later date that includes analysis, findings, recommendations, and probable cause determined. So, going on to what we just discussed on OSHA record-keeping and accident investigations, well, here's the government. This has gone on uh, for over a year and a half. Right? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a good thing they're doing a thorough investigation here. But your employer is going to say, well, do it and do it by the close of business, have it all back. Well, sometimes you might be able to do that. No, if it's a little boo-boo, then you have to put it in the big book of boo-boos like uh, Doc McStuffins. Maybe you could do that, but you can't do that with this. I know you weren't expecting the Doc McStuffins, right? Anyway, I clicked on the docket and wow. There's a lot of stuff here, right? Towing vessel pilot never reported hitting a bridge in Louisiana. A Louisiana barge towing vessel struck and damaged a bridge in 2021, but the vessel's pilot never reported it to authorities. Uh, In the early morning hours of December 23rd, 2021, a... Vessel was pushing six hopper barges on, an, on the intercoastal waterway to New Orleans when the pilot lost control of the tow. While navigating the channel, the 676 foot long tow began to swing to port. That means the left, all right? Right? Versus the starboard, which is the right, right? The left of the boat, port. All right? When the pilot realized the tow was not positioned well, he put the engines in reverse. The tow then struck the bridge. He did not know the tow, nor did he know. The pilot told investigators he initially did not see the bridge, nor did he know they struck the bridge. The track, blah, blah, blah. And the tow uh, was there. Photo was not from the time of the strike. Okay, going on and on and on. When the tow struck the bridge, water, electrical, and gas lines along the bridge ruptured, triggering alarms at the utility providers. Workers sent to the investigate found the bridge damaged and reported it to the U.S. Coast Guard. Video from a forward-looking camera on the ship captured a vehicle passing over the bridge with visible, visible lights before the contact. What time did this happen? Early morning hours. Okay, so probably dark, right? When the tow struck the bridge, water, blah, blah, blah. According to NTSB investigators, based on the investigation, it is apparent the pilot was aware the tow hit the bridge, but he did not report the striking to the relief captain or to the Coast Guard. Federal regulations require the operator of the vessel involved in an unintended bridge strike to immediately notify the nearest U.S. Coast Guard office. The bridge, which does not cross a navigable waterway, was closed to traffic following the contact content and... The repairs of the bridge were estimated at $2 million. Uh, What was the root cause? Probable cause? Lost control. Yeah, you think? So this bridge was way out of the channel, it appears to be. And uh, there is no freaking way that anybody, this thing, would have went underneath it. So, uh, and, well, according to the picture, wow, they really whacked this bridge Wow. Lack of spotter leads to crane toppling off barge. This is from February 16th of this year. A crane toppled off a Virginia barge last year because no spotter was present to notice the crane being driven too far aft. That means right in the back. And the cable system securing the crane to the barge failed. So this is one that I see a lot. Right, In the marine industry, they put mobile equipment, either an excavator, a backhoe, a crane, on a barge. And that's supposed to be secured down so it can't move. And then what happens is I even saw broom lifts, which is like, by the way, against the uh, rule book, against the instruction manual. And then what happens? Someone's not paying attention or the load shifts. And what do you think happens? Thing falls off. Right, then 320 uh, 20 ton, ton crane. Oh, I know where this is, right? I've been across this bridge. While working on the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel expansion project near Norfolk on February 8th, uh, 2022, an onboard crawler crane fell off the construction barge and into the bay. The crane was later recovered and declared an insurance loss of nearly $2 million. There were no injuries when an oil stream was visible on the water. The 320-ton crane was secured to the barge using a centerline cable that allowed the crane to move back and forth. The system, required by OSHA, was intended to prevent the crane from moving laterally or rolling off the barge. Uh, The NTSB investigators found that as the crane moved toward the stern preparing for lift, the centerline's cable aft eye had opened and became disconnected from the aft deck bracket. And they have have, uh, uh, visuals here. So, when the, uh, the cable became dislodged, right, causing the cable system to fail, allowing the crane to f- travel too far aft, and the investigation found that a stronger centerline cable system, one in line with OSHA regs, would have prevented the crane from being driven off uh, the barge. And this is another one, too, right? Uh, Company uh, company's policy required the spotter to be used anytime the crane is traveling but there was no spotter present uh, the NTSB found that the company did not know workers were not following its policy because they did not have processes in place to ensure workers were complying wow and uh, you know what end of the program I'll see you tomorrow I got all wrapped up in things good night